to get a bit of a running head start, Matthew 16 ends with one verse. Jesus speaking to the disciples, he said, assuredly, so take it to the bank, this is going to happen, assuredly, you can be sure of this, I say to you, there are some standing here, and he's speaking to his disciples, not all, but some who are here, who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Jesus sets the stage with this prophecy, this prediction for what then follows. We're told by Matthew that after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, John, James's brother, and he led them up on a high mountain by themselves, likely Mount Hermon, high elevation, 9,000, 10,000 feet. Imagine it being snow-covered, the late winter, early spring. And we're told that while they're on this little four-man camping trip, that Jesus was transfigured before them, such that his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. Imagine this moment, I mean, for a second. Imagine being one of these three characters, Peter, James, and John. Imagine going with Jesus. He separates you from the group. He says, guys, let's, let's climb up on this mountain. Why? Yeah, he doesn't explain. It was normal for Jesus to do this with these three guys, to spend some mano y mano, some one-on-one time. And they are up there, and we don't really know a lot of the background, the scene, what's happening. But then out of nowhere, just unexpectedly, Jesus, he's transfigured. And Matthew, who's not an eyewitness, but would have heard this from the accounts of Peter, James, and John, this transfiguration presented Jesus in, in this physical appearance, such as, and we're told, that he's shown, his face shown, it radiated like the sun. Imagine that. This glow. Was it at night? Was it during the daytime? If it was at night, man, the, the brightness. During the day, he's outshining the sun itself. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white. And again, this is just descriptive terms. They're not sure what's exactly happening, but it was white like as, as light. The moment Jesus here transfigured in front of these three men. Now understand that the miracle here isn't the fact that Jesus was transfigured. The word transfigured in the Greek is metamorphosized. It's, it's the term that we use to describe the very unique and pretty radical process by which a caterpillar becomes a butterfly. Now understand that it's not as though the caterpillar becomes something that it, it wasn't. No, instead what happens in this metamorphosis with a caterpillar as an illustration is that the caterpillar decides, well, you know, I'm sick of crawling around and it's time for me to fly. I've always been designed to fly. I've always needed to fly. I've always felt the calling to fly. I've always been a, a butterfly. And so he wraps himself in a cocoon. He dissolves into this soup of DNA and molecules that then reassembles into, into a butterfly. It's not as though the caterpillar becomes a butterfly, it's that the, the caterpillar transforms into the butterfly it's always been, but that identity had been concealed from view. That's the idea we have here with Jesus, him being transfigured, being metamorphosized. The miracle isn't that, it wasn't really that who Jesus was internally came out to be seen, it's that he was for so many years able to conceal that from view. I mean, think about that. It's not as though Jesus became 
something that he wasn't. It's who he was always came into view for this moment for these three men. Alone on a mountaintop, secluded and separated. Jesus pulls back the veil so these three men get a glimpse into who he's always been. Imagine after this following Jesus around, you know? Imagine you're James, John, or you're Peter, and you're there around a campfire making your way back to the Galilee, and you're sitting there, and Jesus goes to sleep, and you're like, is it going to happen again? I mean, you're always looking, you're always expecting, when is this going to take place? Because you've seen him, you've seen him for who he is. In fact, John and Peter will both write about it in their own epistles, quoting that we beheld his glory as the glory of, of the Father, the presence of Jesus, the divinity, the Godhead shining forth in its purity and its glory out of the, the human tent that Jesus bore. And they beheld this, they saw it. No questions as to who Jesus was in the minds of these men at this point. This isn't a normal occurrence, a normal thing. And if the scene couldn't have gotten weirder, not only does Jesus in this moment transfigure, so who he is comes shining forth for them to see, but we continue that behold. Now this is, when Matthew says behold, you need to think about this. If it wasn't already weird enough, behold, it gets weirder. Moses and Elijah appeared to them, and they're talking with Jesus. Amazing. I made the joke last Sunday. Not so much a joke. How do we know that this is Moses and Elijah? How did they know? This is the biblical evidence of name tags. Name tags in heaven. That's how they would have known. They've never seen a picture of Moses or a picture of Elijah. It's the my name is Moses that clued them in. Oh, that's Mo. And that's Elijah, that's Eli. And they're hanging out with Jesus. Now why these two men? There's a lot of different theories uh, regarding why these two men. We're told in another account of this passage that they're discussing with Jesus his coming death. It's of note, it's of concern. Now Moses and Elijah, with maybe the, the one exception of King David, are like the heroes. <clears throat> they're the heroes of the Jewish faith. You could also throw in Abraham, the father of the faith. But as far as like, you know, the identity growing up, looking at, at heroes, just like we would think of Thomas Jefferson or George Washington or Abraham Lincoln, you know, some of the, the, the forerunners, and we would admire them and think kindly of them, and, and they're, they're connected to our national identity. Moses and Elijah, I mean, they rank right up there on Mount Rushmore of the Jewish faith. We have Moses who represents the law. He was uh, the man that God raised up to lead the children of Israel out of captivity to a land of promise. It was under Moses' leadership that he took this ragtag group of slaves. He made them into a nation. He gave them the law, the instructions. Moses has a unique place because you had to ordain the priesthood. And there was a whole process by which you had to ordain the priesthood. But you had to be a priest in order to ordain the priesthood. But there's no priests. So how do you ordain the priesthood? How do you get it started? So God calls Moses to be the first priest but then to let go of the priesthood. And he goes through this process whereby he, he codifies Aaron and his line to the, be the priest. Like Moses is a very unique, he's given the law, he ordains the priest, he establishes the tabernacle, which would later become the temple, this meeting place of God. Moses unique, going up onto Mount Sinai, 
receiving the law from God, we're told that when he came down from the mountain, everyone's freaked out. Why? Because he glowed. His face shone like the sun. He had been in the presence of God, and he acted as the moon. You know, the moon doesn't produce any light in and of itself. It's not a light bearer, the moon. It's a light reflector. The sun is the light, and the moon just radiates the light that it it gets, it bounces off. And this is what happened with Moses. He's in the presence of God. And he comes down down the mountain. And they're like, you're radioactive, bro. <laughs> you're freaking everybody out. And he has to wear a veil on his face. Moses, the law. And then Elijah is also just this unique, fascinating character. He represents the prophets. The prophets being the mouthpiece of God. You had the priests. And the priests served a, f- a function within the national identity, the religious culture of Israel. The priests would represent humanity before God. But it was the prophet, the prophets within Israel, that would represent God to the people. There were times in their history where they were wayward, they were doing things that they shouldn't, that God would raise up a man and sometimes even a woman to act as a prophet, his megaphone, to say some things that needed to be said to the people, often very difficult, very hard. And Elijah has this whole backstory. Elijah, unique, as one of maybe two, potentially three heroes of the Old Testament that don't seem to actually die of natural causes, yet alone die at all. Elijah has this story where he's got his protege, Elisha, and we're told that he doesn't die. He hands over his cloak. Elisha would take his place, and we're told he's caught up into this fiery chariot into heaven. If you study the scene of heaven, literally the throne of God comes down and is like, yo, Eli, let's go hang out. Why these two men, some people would speculate, yes, the law and the prophets, they represented Judaism. And Jesus would be, note, he said he didn't come to discard the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. That everything within the law, everything God had revealed to Moses, everything that God had revealed to Elijah, Jesus was the fulfillment of it, the completion of it. And thus these two men in this moment are with Jesus discussing the ultimate ramifications of it all, his death and then later resurrection. It also could be that they're discussing things that would still be yet future. There are two what we call witnesses that pop up in the middle of of Revelation in the end. Two prophets that come that seem to have supernatural powers and abilities that testify during the first three and a half years of great tribulation to the Messiahship of Jesus. They're sent to the Jewish people. They minister in Jerusalem. And when you read about the things that they did, people would come up and rise up against them, and fire would come raining down and devour them. They were untouchable. Could it be Moses and Elijah? Some think. Hence why they then appeared. I made the the mention last Sunday. It's kind of where we left off our examination. Don't miss the implications of the fact that it's Moses and Elijah. (laughs) Like, Seriously. Great trivia question to ask. When, does, when is Moses a character in the New Testament? Or when do you see Elijah in the, New Te- the pages of the New Testament? They're alive. They're interacting with Jesus. They're in glory. They're, but they're alive. Don't miss that. Because, again, we're given this insight into the fact that the soul of man doesn't cease. But it, it's eternal. Moses and Elijah have not been on earth for quite a while. And yet here they are. And the transfiguration of Jesus, having a conversation, amazing. We're told then Peter, Peter answered. Now, please note, 
was there ever a question asked to Peter? <laughs> no. <laughs> There's this incredible scene, right? I mean, an awe-inspiring, radical, you have Jesus in his glory, and Moses and Elijah, and they're having a powwow. And Peter feels the inclination that I need to get involved in this. So he answers while not asked, and he says to Jesus, Lord, now that's a good start. Jesus is Lord. He says it's good for us to be here. No kidding, Peter. Nothing like stating the obvious. Hey, this is a great thing. Glad to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, why would Peter be inclined to make this particular suggestion? Why would Peter ask permission in this moment to build for Jesus, Moses, and Elijah three tabernacles? Now, understand a tabernacle. It's got a lot of Old Testament imagery. It's loaded. It's a tent. So Peter's like, hey, we're, we're out here. You want us to make some tents for you guys? Like, we're hanging out. This is great. Like, we can stay here. It could be that Peter, having some inclination, some understanding of the advent, of the, of, of the Messiah, his fulfillment, the, the kingdom, the coming kingdom, that he's like, hey, let's go ahead and build some tabernacles. This is the beginning of what we've all been waiting for. Again, we'll get into this in a minute. They, there was an anticipation within Jewish culture of Elijah being the forerunner of the king and the establishment of the kingdom. We have this prophecy uh, um, in Malachi at the end of the Old Testament. Note that when you follow the various Jewish feasts, and we won't get into all of it, but for note, the final feast is what's known as the Feast of Tabernacles. It's the Feast of Booths. Even today, when they, when they, when they celebrate it, everyone leaves their house and they set up tents. And, it's, and it's, this, it's, it's a celebration of expectation for what? For the kingdom. That's what it's about. It's for when Jesus finally comes, Jesus sets down on the Mount of Olives, it splits in two, he goes into Jerusalem, he's establishing the kingdom. Everyone is gathered to Jerusalem. And everyone camps out as Jesus is establishing his kingdom on earth. Establishing roles, establishing the organization and the structure. So the Feast of Tabernacles is this celebration of anticipation for this coming event where Jesus comes and establishes the kingdom. So it's very likely that Peter shouldn't be dogged on too badly for this suggestion. But he has a little bit of insight. He's like, whoa, this is happening. I see your glory. You're transfigured. There's Elijah, name tag. I know it. I didn't anticipate Moses being involved, but cool. I assume he's got a place in the kingdom. That would make sense. So we'll go ahead and set up some tabernacles. We'll get this thing going. Again, it's hard to dog on Peter. He's not asked, but he, he just gets in the midst of it. Now, while he was speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. Now, that's not a good thing. I mean, again, placing yourself in the scene. As he's talking, as he's formulating his idea, as he's, as he's interjecting himself into this scene, presenting this suggestion of building these, these tabernacles, 
a bright cloud. The Shekinah glory is the imagery that we're given from the Old Testament. This cloud descends. Now, back when the, the Hebrew people, they're at Sinai. They knew the presence of God was on the mountain because there was this cloud that would descend upon the mountain. And it would be accompanied by lightning and, and, and weird occurrences. And you weren't allowed to touch the mountain or you would die. So this cloud overshadows them. Imagine that moment, this fog, this mist coming in. And suddenly, if things weren't strange enough, the cloud speaks. Because we're told a voice came out of the cloud. Saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. You know, Peter's suggestions never really addressed. Peter's in the midst of like formulating this great plan. Cloud comes down, voice booms forth. Basically, shut up, Peter. That's what the cloud says. Shut up and listen to him. Be quiet. Be still. This is my beloved son. My beloved son. The father affirming his love for Jesus. Not only his love for Jesus, but important, in whom I am well pleased. Jesus, this affirmation of his perfection, of his holiness. Significant for what he would go from this point forward to accomplish. The sacrifice for sin. The affirmation here of the Father, this is my son and I love him and I'm so pleased with him. So you need to listen. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. You can imagine. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and do not be afraid. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. You know, <clears throat> I do think that within our culture, and when I say culture, I mean kind of our Christian culture, that there is a little bit of a disconnect that we have, generally speaking, of our perception of Jesus. And not just our perception of Jesus, but often the way in which we approach Jesus. You know, the Bible says that, that when we die, we breathe our last, we awake in glory, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. That the first thing you're going to see is the face of Jesus. And we often think that in that moment, it's going to be like this overwhelming sense of, of goosebumps, tinglies, positive feelings. It's Jesus. And we'll just snuggle up in his lap like a little kitten. You know, every time that we have this presentation of people in the heavenly realm, there is such an overwhelming sense of awe that it borderlines on fright, but it's reverence, and it causes people to fall on their face. There's no, I, I can approach. There's no, I deserve to be here. There's no, I'm worthy and good enough. I'm glad I'm here. Let's straighten this mess out. It is this, this instant moment where you see Jesus, and you fall to your face as if you're dead. It's no like, Jesus is my BFF, man. Jesus is my homeboy. He ain't our homeboy. That shirt, funny, but so irreverent. When you see Jesus, these men saw Jesus for who he was. It all gets stripped away. He comes shining forth. God says, this is my son. I'm pleased with him. Shut up, Peter, and listen. And the moment they see it, they hit the deck. 
prostrate. And their eyes are closed. And then what? We're told, look at it again. They heard it, they fell on their face, they were afraid, but Jesus came and he touched them. Notice he touches them before he says anything. There's no words, there's no instructions, there's no rebukes. There's just a loving touch of Jesus. These men are on their face. Peter's like, I finally really stepped in it. And Jesus comes over and he touches them. Is he still in his glory? We don't know in that moment. But we're told that in this, in this he, he just says to them, he says, arise guys, do not be afraid. And the moment they, they lifted their eyes, everything was back to the way it was. It was normal. There was Jesus. His face didn't shine anymore. His, his presence wasn't radiating. His clothes weren't white. Moses and Elijah are gone. The cloud's gone. The voice is, is silent. Boom. Everything just right back the way that it was when it all started. But they never see Jesus the same way again. In fact, why would these men, John, the only one to live the, the, an entire life, the only one to, to not die the martyr's death, not because they didn't try. Diocletian tried to boil him in oil, and he, and he bobbed like a piece of chicken that wasn't frying. A miracle took place, and <clears throat> he gets exiled to the island of Patmos. John dies of natural causes. He's the oldest. Ends up being the pastor of the church of Ephesus, and they take him around. He says, little children, love one another. He was the love apostle. Read his writings. Love one another. God is love and he loves us and love each other. And he could never get this scene out of his mind. And James' brother's the first to die the martyr's death. And Peter, most notably, the leader, also dies, is crucified, but refused to be crucified as his Lord, instead was crucified upside down before or after, pardon me, they crucified his wife. But these men were willing to live and they were willing to die for Jesus because they could never get this scene of who Jesus really was out of their mind. They had seen him and they knew him and they were moved by him. The transfigured Jesus. It changes them forever. Now, I want to pivot for a minute about this idea of the transfiguration. Because I do think that theologically there is something else that's occurring here that's important for you and I in particular. Because we see this scene, we see Jesus, this is who he really is, shining forth. The inside is now radiating out. This word transfigured. We find this word transfigured in two other places. Not in reference to Jesus, mind you, but in reference to you and I. Because guess what? Who you really are is not easily seen from the outside peering in. In fact, there are only instances, and it should be our desire for who I am inside to figure out a way to radiate forth. That in a sense, we are all being transfigured, and Jesus gives us an example. Now, if you're saying, well, Zach, I don't understand this. Okay, I mentioned Moses is happening in the Old Testament. Moses is different, though, because Moses was in the presence of God, and he was radiating, and it diminished. It went away. But we have another example, and you don't have to turn there, with Stephen in the book of Acts, chapter 7. 
Stephen is having these debates with the Judaizers in Jerusalem. He's presenting Christ. He's a wonderful example. He started as just a disciple, and then he was a deacon, and he was just a a table waiter in the church. And and when he's done with his shift at the church, cleaning tables, he'd go out, and he'd have conversations with people that didn't know Jesus. A man was on fire. And he has this great debate, and they take him before the Sanhedrin. Amazing sermon he gives. And then they're so ticked off by it, because the world hates Jesus and hates those who stand up for Jesus. Be ready for that. It's coming. But in this instance, they take Peter, uh, not Peter, but Stephen out. Saul, who would become Paul, holds the coats. They stone him to death. And as they're stoning him, we're told that Stephen, and we get this account probably from Paul himself, who's there holding the coats, filled with rage, wants to see this man die, and as he's being pelted with rocks, he looks to heaven, and he sees heaven part, and Jesus stand up. Only time we see Jesus stand up. He's seated at the right hand of the Father, but he's moved to stand when he sees one of his own suffering, and he sees it, and and Stephen sees Jesus, and we're told what? He begins to shine like the sun. Who he was inside becomes shining forth for everyone to see. Let me try to explain this from a theological standpoint. I hope I can do a good enough job. This might get weird. You go all the way back to creation. Get back to Adam and Eve. Interesting that God did not make Adam and Eve and the garden with clothes. Don't know if you're aware of that. We're told uh, Adam and Eve were naked in a garden eating fruit, having fun. And there was no shame, there was no insecurities, there was no, it was, it was, they were as they were. But what's fascinating about the idea is that when the sin thing happens, when Eve takes the fruit and gives it to Adam, when they rebel against the one command that God gave, something immediately happens to them that's weird, it's odd. We're told that they, they immediately understood that they were naked. Now wait a second, you were already naked. But now you understand you're naked. So exactly, exactly what is happening here where you go from I'm naked and I don't know it, but now I'm naked and I do know it. Now there's a lot of different debates, a lot of different theories, but one of them in particular that I think has a lot of credence to it is that something went out in the moment that they sinned. That they were clothed but they were clothed in a spiritual heavenly sense. That there was a light, an aura, a presence that both Adam and Eve had in perfection. Similar to Jesus shining forth. And it was the moment that they sinned that they understood they were naked. Why? Because what was clothing them, this aura, this light was gone. It was extinguished. And and they they reckoned, which is why immediately what do they do? They're like, we can cover this. Why? We don't want God to see that it's not glowing anymore. So they go in to get fig leaves, terrible covering, prickly, and they don't last very long. Not good, adequate covering. And God, as you know the story, ends up coming down. He's like, well, what's going on here? He makes for them covering, and we have the introduction of sacrificial atonement in this whole process. But, transfiguration. So if there was a light, a presence within, within each of us, perfection, within Adam and Eve, but then we also see within Jesus this transfiguration, this glow. Then what happens? You know, it's interesting. 
In Matthew chapter 5, if you want to flip back just a few pages to the left, we're going to do a little hopscotch here. But in Matthew chapter 5, look at verse 13. Jesus, this is in the Sermon on the Mount. <coughs> he says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. And then notice, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. And then Jesus says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your, your Father in heaven. So within this sermon, <clears throat> Jesus is talking to his disciples, and what does he tell them? He's like, you guys, and again, it wouldn't happen here. Some things would have to take place later. You guys are going to be the light of the world. Like, you're going to shine forth glory. You will be the light of the world. People will look at you and they will see the divine. They will see something supernatural. They will see something amazing. Flip, if you would, to John chapter 8. So we're thinking about this process. You're like, wait a second. Okay, I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm to be the light of the world. How do I do that? Exactly, what's the mechanism? Okay, I'm to be the light of the world. I shouldn't be hidden. I should be out. I should be in the dark places so that people can see my life and glorify God. They'll look at my life. They'll see something that's not part of me, but something shining forth. Again, we're using this, this terminology, light. And they'll see it. It'll be visible. And then what? Chapter 8 of John. Verse 12, Jesus spoke to them again, and he said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but note, have the light of life. Notice Jesus is saying here, in one place, he's like, you will be the light of the world. How do I do that? And then in another place, he says, okay, well, I'm the light. I'm the light. So how is the light going to shut? And he says, you'll have the light of life. So Jesus is saying, I'm going to give you something. I'm going to put something in you. It's something you'll have. You will possess it. Now you're like, Zach, you, you, where are we going with this? Let's get back to transfiguration. Second Corinthians chapter 3. Again, you don't have to turn there if you don't want to. I'll read it for you. A few verses, actually, beginning with verse 7. We read, But if the ministry of death written and engraved on stones was glorious, speaking of the law, so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory has passed away. So he's like, Moses was in the presence of God, and it was all the law, and he glowed, he radiated, but it went away. How will the ministry, Paul writes, of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry of the, of the condemnation had glory, again, of the law, the ministry of righteousness, what Jesus came to do, exceeds much more in glory. For even if that which was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. Paul has a way with words, doesn't he? 
For if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is more glorious. Therefore, since we have this bold hope, we use great boldness of speech, unlike Moses who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadfastly at the end of what was passing away, but their minds were blinded. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. You can find your own commentary and get into this more. But, verse 15 even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on the heart. Nevertheless, when one turns away, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. The veil is removed. Now, verse 17, this is the heart of it. The Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with an unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being, note the word, transformed into the same image from glory to glory. How? By the Spirit of the Lord. I, I mentioned two other places that the word transformed, the same word metamorphosis, regarding Jesus' transfiguration, where what was inside comes beaming forth. This is the other place, one of two, the other place that we find the same word, and it's in reference to whom? You, who Jesus has already said will be the light. How? Not because you're the light, but because he's the light of the world. And you will have something, you will possess it, and it will shine forth. And how does that happen? Well, he says here, how? The Holy Spirit. So what do I have that we can call the light, that is supernatural, that's different, that can be seen visibly? What does God give us? Where does the transformation begin? What happens through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You see, the life that existed, that Adam and Eve had, that the moment they sinned went out. So that they were like, oh my goodness. They recognized it. There was a sense. There was a shame. They were incomplete. They were lacking. That, that sin gets removed. It gets replaced. The light within you gets turned back on when you give your life to Jesus and you ask that he would fill you with his Holy Spirit and he takes out, we're told, the heart of sin and he replaces it with his spirit. The spirit of Jesus. Again, you possess it. I am the light of the world. You will have this light. You'll be on a hill. But how does it happen? It's spiritual is what Paul tells us. God imparts to us, he gives us, he fills us with his spirit. And we see this take place within that group of people. Jesus, after the resurrection, would breathe on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And they would receive the Holy Spirit. And they would be changed. And then later on, we see again, there they are on Pentecost. And the Holy Spirit comes upon them and begins to outflow from them. And it's visible and it's radical and it's supernatural. And people see it and they're amazed and they're like, that's not normal. In the same way that Peter, James, and John look at Jesus and they're like, huh? What I saw physically was just a limitation. It wasn't the true self. It wasn't the true person. And then Jesus, they see his glory and they're like, oh my goodness. You see, there is a glory that God fills you with, and it's by His Spirit. Have you ever noticed, have you ever, have you, maybe I'm weird. I take that back. I am weird. But have you ever been in a dynamic, a situation, you didn't know the people you were with. But just in the course of just, you were like, something 
that person. Something's about them. It's not been anything they've said. It's not been anything that they've done. But you just see it. And you're like, are you a believer? As a matter of fact, I am. I knew it. I saw the same glow that I hope you saw in me. This thing, this spiritual thing, this mysterious, radical, supernatural thing. You're going to be the light of the world. How? Jesus is like, well, I'm the light. You're a light bearer. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to fill you with light by my spirit. And then your job is to let that light shine forth. How do we do that? Again. Flip to the left to Romans. Last place we'll flip. Romans 12, I'll read you two verses. I said there were two other places that the word transfigured is used. Here's the other one. First, with Jesus, then we find the Holy Spirit. We're being changed, transformed, metamorphosized by the Holy Spirit inside of us. And then we read, Paul writes to Romans, in Romans 1, 12 verse 1, he says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, metamorphosized, by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is good and acceptable and the perfect will of God. Now, the renewing of the mind. We don't have to turn there, but in Ephesians 5, verse 26. How does the renewing of one's mind occur? It's very simple. We're told that we are washed by the word of God. You see, transformation, metamorphosizing, becoming who God has called us to be. Letting your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your God. How, do we how are we being transformed into the image of Jesus? Like we see with the Mount of Transfiguration. Well, it's two ways. First, it can't happen without the light beginning. Right? The Holy Spirit has to be indwelled. We call it being clothed in righteousness. We find that imagery all over the place in regards to salvation. The indwelling of the Spirit is a clothing, fascinating Verbiage, right, in regards to Genesis. It's a reclothing. I'm not insecure. I, I, I'm, I'm complete. I'm clothed, and I want this to shine forth. This begins with the Holy Spirit, this light in my heart that shines forth, and then it continues this transformation. How? Not just by the Spirit, but then by the renewing of my mind, by the, quote, according to Ephesians, washing of the Word of God. You spend time in God's Word. And what happens? You're changed by it. You're transformed by it. Your mind is changed. Your heart is changed. You need the Holy Spirit, but then you need the washing of the Word. And the more time you spend in the Word, the more the light shines. Now, how is that? Well, Jesus is the light of the world, right? So he's the light of the world. There's, a, there's a, a, several studies that have been done regarding sociology and just the way that human beings interact with one another socially, etc. You do, it's true, become like the people you hang around. It's a give and take. You'll gravitate towards the people that are most like you, 
And then in the process of hanging out with those people, it reinforces all of those things about you that, get, that led you to them. It's why, like, the longer you spend, like, it's hard to get out of your sphere. You see this within politics, right? Over time, if you're a very political person, whatever party you happen to be in, you don't hang out with the other party. Why? Because you don't have much in common with them, so you gravitate towards the people that believe the things that you believe. You hang out with them, and then it all reinforces to the point that you become in your own bubble, and you're like, I don't even understand how you could ever think that way. Because I'm around all the people that just reinforce the things that I like in them because they're like me. So you, you become like who you hang out with. It's the idea. Sociology teaches us this. Jesus said, in addition to I am the light of the world, he describes himself, so, so the word is living and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword. We read that in Hebrews. Jesus in Revelation will actually present himself as what? The word of God. We're told he is the word, John 1, 1, that became flesh and dwelt among us. And so if the whole idea, the whole concept here, Jesus was transfigured, it gives us the template. I want to do the same thing in your life. I want you to glow. I want you to radiate forth. Step one, I'm going to fill you with my spirit. Step two, I'm going to wash you with my word. The more you're in my word, the more time you spend in my word, the more time you're spending with me. And guess what the cool thing about hanging out with Jesus is Jesus doesn't become more like you. You become more like him. And that's accomplished by spending time in his word. That is why, my friends, Calvary 316 is founded upon and will never gravitate from the teaching of God's word. Because when you come to church, it's important to hang out with Jesus. And he's like, you want to hang out with me? It's very simple. Do this. Open it, read it, talk about it, study it, get to know it. And in the process, you're going to be changed by it. That's what we're told here in Romans 12. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind through the washing of God's word. Amazing. The transfiguration, understand the transfiguration, aside from all of the, the baseline radical theological principles established by it, gives us insight into what Jesus is wanting to accomplish in you. Now, that's not going to be completed until when? The day you enter glory. That transfiguration is a process. I knew a guy in Bible college. His name was Tom Mouch. Taught my Psalms class. You have 18, 18 sittings. There's 150 chapters. Like you're just, you spent most of the time just reading the Psalms. But Tom had been walking with Jesus for like 60-something years. He was like 80 years old. And he read it like it was flowing from his heart. And when, he, when you encountered him, when he talked to you, he'd give you a big hug. He was like, he just, he oozed. The only way I can say it is creepy, but it's, but it's true. He oozed the Holy Spirit. When you hung out with Tom, you felt like you were hanging out with Jesus. And that's what it should be with you. When people hang out with you, they should be like, man, I feel like I just, I, I can't explain it, but I feel like I just kind of hung out with something a little supernatural. And the longer you, you walk with Jesus and the longer you're being washed by the word and the deeper you, you relate to the Holy Spirit and you let him lead you and guide you and you walk in the spirit, the more and more your life should radiate the presence of God to walk with Jesus. Back to Matthew 17. 
When they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus, verse 9. Now when they came down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. And that's likely because they just really wouldn't understand any of this without some later context. You know what I mean? And his disciples asked him, saying, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Which, again, is a very natural question to ask within the context of all that they've just gone through. And Jesus answered, and he said to them, indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has come already. They did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. For the sake of time, we're going to stop there because we, we get into another <clears throat> really heavy passage of Scripture with this boy being healed and some really incredible things that, that are articulated. We don't have time for them. But I just return to the, the thrust of the transfiguration. Again, a lot of lessons Death is not the end of you. Moses and Elijah show that. I mean, they illustrate. In fact, you will come back to earth one day. That's what the Bible says. That's not, my, that's, that's not me saying it. That's what the Bible says. And you're going to die, spend some time with Jesus, and then come back with him to earth. And Moses and Elijah are a good picture of this. And then we see for sure who Jesus is if there was ever a moment. That little babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger, had all of that glory buried in him. And then there's this day where he's like, Peter, James, and John, you guys need to see something. And you need to know something. And that glory comes shining forth. And he wraps it all back up again. But for that moment, they could see him for who he was. And don't miss that. That is who Jesus is. And the confirmations of that are the voice that came from, not just Moses and Elijah, their confirmation. But you also have the voice, this is my son. He's God. Listen to him. I'm pleased with him. And then there's this greater picture. We see in Jesus this work that God wants to accomplish in us. Sin turns the light out, man. But Jesus wants to turn the light back on. And he does that through his spirit. And then that glow that occurs, it continues as we're washed, as we hang out with Jesus in his word, as we begin to think like he thinks, and we begin to feel what he feels, and we begin to see the world as he sees it. Salvation, it's presented as, yes, something that happens immediately. And then it also is presented as something that will happen in the future, the completion of it. But then salvation is articulated and it's described and it's, it's presented as a process by which we're being saved. And what does that mean? Well, there's this process by which we are being transformed. When people see you, do they see Jesus? Beyond what they see, which admittedly it's more of a mystical thing. It's more of a spiritual thing. 
But when they hear you talk, do they hear Jesus? When they look at your life and they see how you live, how you treat your neighbor, yeah, that neighbor. Not the easy one, the hard one. The one that no one in the neighborhood likes. But they see that you don't talk bad about them. And you look for simple ways to show kindness to them. Do they look at you and say, you know what, he's different. He reacts differently. He behaves differently. He speaks differently. And I don't get it. I don't understand it. Because I don't have it. Because you don't. Are people ever curious? There's a cliche that you might be the only Bible someone ever reads. But it is true. Especially in our world that has grown more and more disillusioned with Christianity. And there's so much noise about Christianity in our society. People think they know about Christ. Sadly, they don't because Christians don't represent them. And our world has a lot of misconceptions about Jesus because we don't, because we fail to reflect that glory, to be that light. Again, note the thing about a light. Does a light struggle to exist? Does a light struggle to illuminate? Does this light struggle to be? No, it doesn't at all. You turn it on, and it's on. What we have here is not some, some guilt trip or some explanation. It's not some diatribe on all the things that you need. The 12 steps for you to be the, a better light. No. It's let Jesus turn something on and then you hang out in his word and it all happens organically. It happens naturally. It is a natural manifestation of something that's very real. Jesus light turned on. They beheld his glory. So let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. And, and what? Glorify you? No, 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 no. They may see your good works and say, wow, they're a knucklehead. So this has to be God. So Lord, we love you and we thank you for this time.